Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Again, God's word, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. You don't have to go to church to be a good Christian. I am spiritual, but not religious. Worship doesn't do anything for me. I get more out of a nature walk or quiet time. Institutional religion hurts faith more than it helps it. Regular worship attendance is not that important. Well, as you know, these are common sentiments today. You hear them often, and we can think them ourselves. But are such ideas correct? Do they accord with biblical truth? Is organized religion good or bad? Is Lord's Day worship optional or necessary? Well, in the present climate, these can be sticky questions. People are quite opinionated about them, and certain answers will step on toes and get you yelled at, which can make us shy. Like politics at Thanksgiving, it can be easier just not to talk about them and to keep your ideas to yourself. And yet Hebrews is brave enough to address these ideas head on. And as it does, Hebrews serves us not human opinions, but serves us with the very truth of God in Christ. So the author of this august epistle has just wrapped up a long section of exposition. Since chapter 6, he has been eloquently expounding for us the doctrines of Christ's priesthood, the new covenant, the heavenly temple, and the one sacrifice for sin. But after all this beautiful theology, he now shifts gear. He transitions from theology to practice, from doctrine to application. He laid the foundation of the truth, and now he wants to drive home how we should respond. The sweet textures of the gospel have caressed our hearts. How then shall we live in its light? And he stretches us out for some exhortations with a summary. Therefore, he says, because we have confidence to enter the holy places. He reminds us that we have a sanctuary. And not just to be able to enter it, but to strut through the door. Indeed, the, accents, the accent of confidence here falls more on the objective right. That is, this confidence is the authorization, the right, and privilege. 
Such confidence is like a VIP badge that unlocks doors, uh, pushes bouncers aside, and ushers you smoothly inside. In fact, it's the objective right that fills us with the subjective boldness. We can enter feeling sure because we have an all-access path. And this season ticket gets us inside the holy place, the sanctuary. But what sanctuary is this? Well, it cannot be the tabernacle, which had long been buried in the dustbin of history. And it's surely not the Jerusalem temple, where the law still barred all but Aaron's sons. Besides, the tabernacle and temple have been clearly identified as types and shadows. They are earthly replicas and models that are passing away. Thus, the sanctuary here is heaven itself. This is the genuine article of the everlasting celestial sanctuary. Yes, this is what Hebrews is actually stating, that you, brothers and sisters, have a VIP card into the holy realm of heaven. And if this sounds like a bit much, he says it again so that we don't miss it. Christ opened a new and living way. He inaugurated and ratified a fresh and living path into heaven. And this avenue uh, into heaven is new in that it belongs to the new covenant, and it didn't exist of old. It's also fresh and in that it's unwilting, vibrant, and pure. This way never goes stale, molds, or gathers dust. It is ageless youth. The route into heaven is also living, which means it never dies, and it imparts life to you. The door into heaven has been flung wide open, and it cannot be shut. And as you enter, you come alive a bit more in Christ. Entrance into heaven invigorates and nourishes you towards that everlasting life of glory. Moreover, this living lane takes us through the curtain, which is the veil before the Holy of Holies. If there was any doubt that the author was referring to heaven here, this dispels it. For on the other side of the veil was God's throne, the very inner chamber of God's abode. And yet all this talk about an open door, a new way and free access, should strike us as remarkable. For such liberty is completely opposite of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. As you'll remember, the tabernacle was a closed book, a locked treasury. Fences and barriers reigned in the tabernacle. There was the outer curtain, where you had to be pure just to enter, The sheet in front of the sanctum was shut for all but priests, and the veil before the ark suffered only the high priest to pass once a year. And each of these portals were guarded by swords. Armed Levite bouncers stood on duty, and if you attempted to trespass, they would cut you down without mercy. Your average lay Hebrew couldn't even see inside the tabernacle, much less step inside. The earthly replica was locked and guarded. But you, you get open access to the reality of heaven. How can this be? Well, we have been told about 
how this is about 50 times in the previous chapters, but he says it again here in two brief uh, phrases. By the blood of Jesus and through his flesh, Christ shed blood opened all the doors for us. His flesh offered up upon the cross is how we get to enter the veil into heaven. As you'll remember, obedient blood was the only key that unlocked the fences into the presence of the living God. And the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus merited for us this VIP card into glory. His life given for us is the authorization and right that allows us to enter with boldness and confidence. Indeed, Jesus didn't die so that we could go back into history to tour the tabernacle or peruse the secret rooms of the temple. Christ didn't buy us access into an earthly replica, but into the reality of heaven. Indeed, his work made him the great priest over God's house. Jesus is the Lord and high priest over the genuine article. And this mention of God's house is actually the ingredient that brings everything together here. For what is God's house? Well, this was one of the most common Old Testament names for the, for the temple or tabernacle. The house of God is the holy dwelling place of the Lord and his people. Yet God's house here also links us back to chapter 3 of this letter, where the author boldly punished, published that we are God's house. This abode is not fashioned from lumber and stone, but with living bodies, the saints united to Christ by faith. God's house is another name for the church. And us being the house of the Lord provides the answer to an itching curiosity here. Namely, we have entrance into the heavenly temple, but how do we get there? What good is an open door if we cannot find it? Thus, how do we enter the sanctuary of heaven? By the house of God by being the church. Now, at first, this may not seem very uh, uh, significant, but this is actually extremely practical. For how does one, or for one, why does one enter the sanctuary to begin with? Well, to worship. Temples, holy places, and sanctuaries are by very definition a place for worship. And what is the one thing that the early church did not have. A temple. Nearly every other religion in the Roman world had fancy temples. The Jerusalem temple was a massive expanse of marble pillars, decorated pavement, and tall walls. And yet to believe in Jesus meant you went from that lofty temple to a house church. As a Christian, you exchanged the gilded architecture of the temple, sparkling with gold, to go sit on a crowded living room floor. Talk about a step down. And this was a huge pull for the saints to go back to Jerusalem. And so the author supplies 
the ideal remedy. By the blood of Christ, you have free entrance to the heavenly temple, and you enjoy the celestial shrine as you come together as the house of God, as we assemble as the church. The gathering of the church for worship, as you know, often looks so unimpressive to the eye. Be it in a home church, a middle school gym with squeaky chairs, or a modest hall. Such places lack the awe of grand architecture of sacred places. But then also there's the people. The early church was a ragtag group of sinners from all walks of life. If you were picking a team in gym class in middle school, no one would pick such a motley crew. And yet this group of miscellaneous saints huddled in sad places is in reality the house of God. And as God's house, we are the true holy people standing in the heavenly temple. The spiritual reality of church worship is so much more glorious and lofty than meets the eye. For by the Holy Spirit and through faith that is in Christ, we as the church step into the holy realm for worship every Lord's Day. Our feet may feel the dust of this age, but our heads are in the glory clouds with God. And this being the case, what could be more fitting than the summons to draw near? Let us draw near. And drawing near is the classic biblical idiom for worship. Those who draw near is another term for worshipers. Likewise, this exhortation is in the plural, we must draw near. This is not focusing on personal prayer or private acts of piety, but this is a corporate call to worship. It is the public worship of the church. Jesus died to grant us a wide door uh, into heaven, and we are admitted into heaven as the church. So then, let us worship. The true ground and reason for regular worship is because Christ's atoning death for us. And no other motive is necessary. Moreover, he calls us to worship with a true heart. Now, a true heart refers to an undivided love and sincere loyalty. A true love is for us to be devoted to the Lord alone, and a true heart is one that is ready to obey. Likewise, we approach with assured faith. We access the spiritual realm of heaven by faith in Christ, and this faith is sure, certain. And such assurance heralds, not from us, but from the object of faith, the truth of Christ. Now, this does not mean our faith will be doubt-free, but by focusing on the definitive work of Jesus, such nagging doubts will diminish and fade more and more. Additionally, we are called to worship with loving hearts and a sure faith because our hearts have been sprinkled and our bodies washed. Now, the sprinkling of the heart has been mentioned several times previously. This is the blood of Christ that purges our evil conscience, forgives us, and makes us 
have a new heart. Jesus purified your conscience so that we can then worship with a pure heart. And yet, what is this about bodies washed with pure water? Well, in the Old Testament, a pure water bath was for the purpose of removing ritual impurity. And ritual impurities included the touching of a dead body, having a baby, genital flows, scale disease, and dealing with impure animals. Now, these weren't sins, but if you touched them, you were defiled and you could not enter the tabernacle until you washed with pure water and waited. Thus, to have washed bodies means that Christ has put an end to Old Testament ritual impurity laws. Touching a dead mouse, burying ante, or that time of the month, none of these bar us from worship as they did under the Mosaic law. Now, there might be here a nod to baptism as a sign and seal of being purified, but the main force here is that ritual impurities no longer keep us from worship. Indeed, in the Old Testament, there were also moral impurities. Now, this was moral guilt for sin upon the heart. But with the sprinkled heart, all moral impurity is done away with, and with washed bodies, ritual impurity is dead. Thus, both moral and ritual impurities were fences and barriers that kept the Old Testament saints from worship. Yet in the New Covenant, Jesus has erased both of these by his blood. All obstacles and inconveniences to worship are gone in Christ, giving us a wonderful liberty to enter and worship. Next, though, he hands us a second exhortation. First, he calls us to corporate worship. And second, he says, let us hold to the confession of hope. Now, hope, of course, deals with the future, with the resurrection in the age to come. And to hold on to our profession of hope is to persevere in belief, desire, and eagerness for glory. This is keeping our eyes upon heaven and never looking away. And so it is unwavering. It is sure and undistracted by the glittering things of this age that are passing away. And since the context is still public worship, this hope of heaven is part of the fabric of our worship. Spiritually, we worship in heaven as the church, and as we do, we long and ache for faith to become sight. Our present worship thirsts for the unending church service in the new heavens and the new earth. Hence, worship is hope in action. And perseverance in hope is the manner and character of our worship. And the surety of our hope rests in the promises of God. Our Lord, who has promised us everlasting life and glory, is faithful. The Father never lies. God does not renege or change his mind about what he promised. Jesus died to ratify the promises of God. Thus, 
nothing is more reliable and stable than the promises of our Savior. Not gravity, not the rising of the sun or the changing of the tides. These laws of nature are fickle compared to the promise of our Lord. As it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but not the word of God. Not the promises that are yes and amen in Christ. But with our worship also soaked in hope, now we're handed a third and final exhortation. Let us consider how to stir up each other to love and good works. Again, this is a corporate call. Every saint is included and none are exempted. Our saintly duty is to help each other to love and good deeds. By this, we cheer each other on in love and obedience. We stimulate others to do what is right and to avoid the sinful. When others act in love and uprightness, we commend them. Nice job. Keep it up. That's great. Keep going. This reveals how we need each other. We can't go it alone, but mutual motivation rallies us to loving and good works. Though this spurring one another on towards the godly has not left the main topic of worship again. For the author specifies a distinct way that we stir others up, namely by not forsaking the meeting together. And this meeting place is none other than the formal and corporate assembly for church worship. It is regular church attendance, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Thus, the word of God here commands us to go to church to be faithful attenders of worship. This isn't an option or a liberty, but it's a duty, a necessity. In verse 22, we were called to worship, and here we are commanded not to forsake this call, not to abandon the proper habit of regular church attendance. And we all have a role in this. Indeed, we do not neglect worship, but we encourage one another. That is, the love and good deeds that we stir up in one another is to go to church. We love God by worshiping. We love each other in worship. The good deeds of obedience are to attend worship. And so also in worship, we are fueled and instructed in love and obedience so that we can go forth and practice them more. Love and obedience get us to church. And in worship, we are buoyed up by grace towards love and good deeds in all of life. And yet for the congregation of this letter, some have stopped coming to church. Some have developed a habit of neglecting worship. Now, the author does not reveal why. Maybe these folk were apathetic, distracted by worldly business, or heading back to Judaism. But no matter the reason, forsaking the assembly is no light matter. For the word here for neglect or forsake is the classic Old Testament expression for infidelity. To forsake God, to forsake worship in the covenant community, was to wander from the faith. And this we should take to heart. To have bad church attendance 
To stop going to church, this too often is a reliable sign that someone is walking away from the faith. People stop church, and soon they give up the faith. Now, this isn't always the case, but it is more more often than not. This is a real danger. It should be a sober warning to us. Thus, against all the falsehoods that say the church is not necessary, that formal religion is bad, and, and that public worship is optional, we need this exhortation. Come to worship. Be steadfast as regular attenders of the church, and let us not forsake the Lord's worship. Jesus died so that we can worship together. To neglect worship is to stiff-arm the very work of Christ. It's not a sin against man, but against God. And a more specific encouragement is fitting here. During the pandemic, public worship was interrupted. Some had to stay home. But now this is past. It's time to come back to church. If you are still at home, the church doors are wide open and the loving arms of the saints are held aloft. Forsake no longer the meeting together of the saints for worship. Worship is a community activity. It is a face-to-face bodily act. It cannot be done fully online. Therefore, let us come to worship. With gentleness and grace, let us encourage and stir one another up to worship, to be faithful in our habit of church attendance. And we should do this more and more as we see the day drawing near. Here the author brings up hope again as part of the fabric of our worship. The coming day is the return of Christ for our salvation to raise us up with new bodies and to usher us into the heavenly Jerusalem for eternity. And the more we sense that Christ's coming is close, the more we should worship. As the day approaches, so the wickedness of the world increases its pressures upon us. The nearing of the inn amplifies persecution and temptation to forsake the Lord. And so so also the more we need the refuge of worship to be built up in faith, hope, love, and good deeds. Also, Christ's coming heralds our chief end to glorify God forever. Thus, we worship presently as a foretaste and appetizer of eternal worship. So then, let us worship. May we encourage one another towards this loving good work to worship our triune God. May our attendance be consistent, steadfast, a regular habit. Indeed, Jesus shed his blood so that we can worship in heaven spiritually. He gave up his body on the cross so that we could come together for prayer and praise. Your high priest Christ did it all so that we can worship together as a body. And all you have to do is show up. Sure, let us come with love in our hearts, with faith and in hope, But just show up. 
be present. For when we come together as the church, the grace of Christ provides all that you need, and the love of the saints encourages us. In worship, you get a foretaste of the glories that Christ has in store for you in heaven. At church, Jesus meets with you and you with him as the new and living way whereby he keeps us for the resurrection. Thus praise the Lord and his almighty grace to us in Christ. And let this loving praise always be present among us. Lord's day after Lord's day, now and until he comes again and for eternity.